maybe an analogy to start that will, well, maybe distract us. When I think of the ocean, especially on a day like this, if you have kids uh, and you have raised them to be near the ocean, or maybe you remember this from your own childhood, one of the first lessons you learn is don't turn your back on the ocean. As you wade into it um, and experience it, be aware of the horizon. Right? Keep your eyes on the horizon. As you explore tide pools, we had this experience last year. Uh, you're looking at the, the intricacies and the beauty of the teeming life within it, and it's easy to get distracted. And while all might seem calm, uh, if the tide is coming in, you're a moment away from a much larger than expected wave coming and knocking you off of your feet. And maybe the message applies here as we press into uh, the teeming life of God's Word and we become enamored maybe in, in some small places with what, what we're uncertain of. They seem like, it seems like new creatures. Uh, would we have our eyes on the horizon and be aware of the source of life and the beauty and power of God at a broader level? Last week when we overviewed this lengthy and complex chapter, taking it in its whole, because it is a bridge chapter, it's a literary unit. You'll, if you read before and after in Mark, you see the ministry of Jesus, really for a number of years, he's been ministering, teaching, healing, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's now in Jerusalem, and the story really slows down. For it's, it's about a week's time that is almost half of the entire letter is related to this one week, this week before his crucifixion and then his resurrection. He's been encountering the religious leaders. And now we jump into this passage, which is largely prophecy, biblical prophecy, Jesus foretelling what is to come, whether it's uh, announcing, uh, giving the disciples an encouragement to have their eyes open, to be alert, to be aware. He says that again and again, uh, whether it's a warning, that's as some biblical prophecy is, with a chance to turn, is that, that, that events might, might change. It's a literary unit that then we see at the final days, really the final hours of Jesus' life. So we take it as a whole, and then we press in. Let's keep the big picture in mind, especially when exploring biblical prophecy. I think Jesus is pointing his disciples' eyes forward and giving them anchors to hold on to because the storms are coming, the storms that they will endure, uh, to, to remain faithful, to remain grounded in his, in his promises when all else seems to be stripped away and seems uncertain. Last week, we primarily consider just the, the big macro overview of biblical prophecy as a whole. Throughout, if you read throughout the scriptures, Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures, you'll find again and again foretelling type events, these, these prophecies of what is to come or even warnings against, uh, against unfaithfulness by God's people and what will happen to, to, to those that drift and astray and over the centuries, God's people did, and that seems to be a repeated theme, to, to turn from God, to ignore, to dismiss, to walk in their own ways, in their own path, and these prophecies largely came to pass. And yet, there's obscurity and uncertainty about it. And what I would present for us today is, and, and continue, as I did last week, is that prophecy, biblical prophecy, isn't just what will happen, and from our historical perspective, what did happen, but what always happens. And there's a reason that, that prophecy is intentionally obscure and vague in places because we are meant to say, has this truly been fulfilled? That's the right question. And, and again, history gives us some clarity to point back, and, and many scholars and theologians would say, uh, yes, look here. It is clear these, these major things have been fulfilled. 
And yet, there's enough uncertainty and question to, to, to make humble Bible students continue to ask that same question. Has this truly, ultimately been fulfilled? And I would argue, not yet. Because prophecy is meant to always articulate the broad story of God, of who he is and what he's doing in the world, so that we could receive the word, even today, and say, it is not yet come to pass in its fullness. And how could that make us alert and aware to the work of God present in his world today? And that's, I believe, the invitation that Jesus is giving us here today through, through this ancient, now ancient letter, these ancient words written, written, recorded, spoke nearly 2,000 years ago. How do they have application for us today in this context, in this culture, which is so different than what it was originally given to. And yet, I believe they do, as God promises through Jesus some amazing things. I'm undecided if I'll devote another message to this. There's a lot here, and I have a lot more notes, as I mentioned last week. And I think by the end of this message, I will know whether to devote another <laughs> message to this chapter. There's more here if you're interested. Maybe, you're, maybe we'll have a side conversation. Rightly interpreting biblical prophecy requires that we rightly understand the story of God and therefore the story of his world. We looked at that a little bit last week. When Jesus says to his disciples here, speaking of the temple that they are, they are right before in Jerusalem, and he says, not one stone will be left on another. Everything will be thrown down. I believe he's saying much more than simply this building and this temple mount that you see, that you are marveling at, will be destroyed. Now, by history, we know that within a few decades, that would come to pass. The Roman Empire would come in and overtake the city and destroy its walls and, and ravish the temple and level it to the ground. Jesus' words would be fulfilled. But I believe he was saying much more than simply this earthly structure will be destroyed. He was saying Take a close look. What you consider the greatest achievements of men, the works of your hands, your greatest accomplishments, what the world marvels at, none will remain. All will fade. All will be destroyed. This is what always happens. So while we can look to history and to AD 70, a very well-documented historical event, and say, look, Jesus' words came to pass. If you read through chapter 13, it's uncertain and unclear. He seems to flip back and forth between speaking of, answering the questions from the disciples, Jesus, when will this happen? What will be the signs? How will we know? And speaking to this event, which now in history, we would say that was AD, AD 70, but there's other language in here that makes us question, is that truly what he was speaking of? Or is that only what he was speaking of? Because his other prophecies seem to be unfulfilled, or at least it's unclear if they have been fulfilled. And I would say again, because this is what always happens, and this is rightly the way we would receive it. It's almost always obscure. In fact, all of biblical prophecy is almost always obscure and not 100% clear. It's often written in poetic language and style. And what we know about poetry is it's not meant to be exactly precise but it can be still very powerful. Often, the prophet speaking or recording is 
recording some kind of vision or dream that he had and trying to put it into words. That could be a difficult thing in itself. And even other times, many of the, maybe, maybe most of the time, the prophets themselves don't know fully what the prophecy means, but they are making it known and proclaiming it that maybe others would come to see and we would see, have some clarity. Certainly for the disciples, hearing these words of Jesus, they couldn't have fathomed that this greatest structure, maybe in all of history at this point, King Herod's temple, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was an ancient wonder of the world at the time. They couldn't fathom this, this structure, which it would have looked like it was solid stone, would have lasted forever, well past their generation. They couldn't have fathomed it, it being raised to the ground in, in maybe a short amount of time, the way that Jesus was speaking. He did say, this generation will not pass away before all these things are accomplished. That had to give them some, some hesitancy and some trepidation. Let alone, this was God's temple. It had been destroyed once, but now it was, it was, it was secure. It was reestablished. No matter how it was rebuilt, it was now established and built. God dwelt there. He had kept a remnant. He had kept the lights on. God would not allow it to be destroyed again. He couldn't. He wouldn't. And so these prophetic words were difficult to grasp and even more difficult to receive and to believe. As we know, the disciples are coming to believe. That's the journey that they're on. This is very characteristic of all prophecy. It's the first recipients of biblical prophecy often are either completely confused by it or want to outright dismiss it. And, and sometimes are even antagonistic against the prophet bringing the message to persecute, to reject, to denounce, to claim as heretical, to banish. This happened throughout the ancient prophets, the, the most well-known ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They all faced incredible persecution because God's people who first heard the prophecies resisted, were antagonistic, and even persecuted the prophets. Jesus had strong words for the Jewish religious leaders uh, regarding this. In Luke chapter 11, verse 47, Jesus said, "'Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, but it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, Jesus says, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. As he's saying this, for they are about to kill the greatest prophet. So, well, we can at least say we are not the first to struggle receiving and understanding biblical prophecy. In fact, I guess it could be said like this. The dividing line between, the, between Jews and Christians today is a matter of interpretation of biblical prophecy. Christians and Jesus himself claimed to be the fulfillment of the prophetic writings on the Messiah, of who the coming anointed one would be, the promised one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the, ones that would make, the one that would make all things right, would save not just Israel, but all peoples. The one that would be the fulfillment of the ancient prophet, pro, uh, prophecy proclaimed to Abraham, through your lineage will come one who all nations on earth will be blessed. Jesus and the authors of the earliest script, Greek scriptures proclaimed it was him. He was that one. Not everyone agrees. And so a dividing line around the interpretation of biblical prophecy continues. As mentioned, time and history 
can certainly bring clarity to ancient prophecies and maybe conviction and maybe humility for those that rejected, for those that missed it. Certainly reading through the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, speaking of the coming destruction that would come to Israel, which maybe they too could not fathom and would said, said, no, God has established us here. He has set up the temple. We are secure. We have a city. We have walls built around it. We are following the, the ways of God and his laws and his rules. But God said their hearts had drifted from, from him. And by history standpoint, we see Assyria, the, the Assyrian nation, empire come in and, and, and ravish the community. We see Babylon later come and destroy them, destroy the temple, take into exile God's people, killing many but taking many others into exile. And so then some of those prophecies become clearly fulfilled. And most Jewish scholars and Christian scholars together would agree. These prophecies are fulfilled. The nations of Assyria and Babylon did come from the north and invade. But God did remain, keep a remnant and send back a remnant and rebuild. There was still hope. God did fulfill his promises so that in the, time, in the generations to follow, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, God's word would have been proven true and God's people could have said, see, we should have listened. God's word is true. It stands forever. But then in the time of Jesus, hundreds of years later, Jesus himself, and therefore taking his lead, the other Greek authors of scriptures claimed that those events spoken by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, yes, they seem to be fulfilled way back then, but Jesus is now claiming a new fulfillment, that those words actually spoke of, of him and his day and his time of, of a new coming of the day of the Lord. And there's many scholars today that would say, yes, but even that was only a partial fulfillment because this day of the Lord, the day of make all things being made right, when, it, when language in Scripture is, speaks like that, it's, it, it clearly hasn't come to pass. This must be yet a future day that is still beyond us living today in 2022. And so we've looked forward to an ultimate fulfillment. And this is what I suggest is the right response to biblical prophecy is a multi-layered response that, yes, we can see more immediate fulfillment within generations following those that originally proclaimed these prophecies. Yes, we can see a greater fulfillment ultimately in Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah. And yet there's language in these texts that leads us to something even more, something that could not possibly have yet been fulfilled. And this vagueness I believe is there intentionally that we would continue to ask that question and stay alert to God's presence and work in this world. Has this truly come to pass or is God still at work fulfilling his word and his promises? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Mark 13, 31. Jesus saying, my words, my promises, Equivalent, as he speaks in other places, of, of God's word. Because he said, I only speak of what God, God gives me to speak. So he claims to have the authority of God to speak for the Father. God's word is synonymous throughout the scriptures with his character, his very nature. It's one and the same. For God cannot speak falsehood and cannot lie. His word is his character. It's his bond. It's everything. And Jesus isn't here primarily speaking of a passing of the, he of the heavens and the earth, but using hy hyperbolic language to say all things could fade away, but not 
the very character of God and his word. It will endure forever. Take it to heart. Have it be your foundation. Have it be your anchor for all other things. Adding to the confusion, Jesus, speaking prophetically, does seem to flip back and forth here, as I mentioned, between what seems to be the fulfillment and the answer to their their question of, of the destruction of the temple and then this much more future time. Here are a couple examples. So Peter, James, and John ask him after he says, all this will be destroyed, all this will, not one stone will be left on another. This is verse four. They say, tell us when these things will happen. What will be the signs that they're about to be fulfilled? And Jesus answered, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. And he goes on, and again, most scholars would say, yes, these events happened, and we could point to some pretty clear ones. And yet, I think anyone that's lived and has has studied history at all would say, wouldn't this be true in just about any point in history if you had eyes alert to more activity in the world? Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines in various places, and even the language that Jesus uses. He sure seems to be speaking of this coming time, and now with history, that the destruction of the temple did happen, so it's pretty easy to, to connect some dots, but he uses language that is, is bigger than this. But the end is still to come. Uh, just the end of this temple? What, what end is he talking about? Is that something more? It, it makes us question. These are the beginning of birth pains. Birth is laborious and painful, but it brings new life. At the time of the destruction of the temple for, for Jews, there was no sense that new life was coming for them. It, felt, it, felt, it did feel like an end. So he's speaking in a way to, to, to make the hearer's heart say, so where is the new life? Where is the more? And that's the right response for us as we receive. Then Jesus does seem to clearly shift to a future time. Verse 24, but in those days... Following that distress, following. So now he's pushing forward beyond this time of of wars and famines and earthquakes, which seems to be the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But he points forward in those days, in that following that distress, there'll be even more. And he speaks with some pretty big pictures. The, The sun and the moon and the stars falling and failing. Many, many scholars have tried to point toward empires or kings as, as the stars, of, as the sun, and have connected it to uh, various gods and beliefs in divinity, and these have fallen, and so therefore this, these events have already been fulfilled. They are past. But Jesus seems to be pointing forward. He is quoting from Isaiah. It's pretty clear he's quoting from Isaiah 13. Some scholars believe also chapter 34. I'll leave you to look at that if you would like. But it seems that he is now, and the Greek, Greek interpreters have, have said, this, we believe this is Isaiah's prophecy, that Jesus is speaking, pointing to something that is yet to come. Many believe that Babylon in the time of, of uh, after Isaiah and Jeremiah that came and, and destroyed uh, Judah and Jerusalem, that Babylon is, was representative of the world when we speak of these future times, when Jesus was speaking of the future times, and that judgment would come to all nations of the earth, and Babylon was just a representative of what was to come. Throughout Mark, we see Jesus use the title Son of Man, and he uses this this. Uh, 
future, futuristic prophetic term, son of man. When the son, you see the son of man coming in glory, coming with the clouds. And he uses this language that we would say, has this truly been fulfilled? It seems like there's more. When I read this passage from Daniel, because he's again referencing Daniel, the prophecies of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And he's applying this to himself. Consider what could be applicable for Jesus in his day and what is not yet fulfilled, what seems to not yet be fulfilled. Because if Jesus is speaking these words toward the end of his ministry and his life on earth, he seems to be pointing to something more. Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people's nations of, uh, of men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." So Jesus, when he uses this title, Son of Man, he's very clearly pointing back to the prophecy saying it's being fulfilled in your midst as he spoke in many, many ways. But, but this language, we can both see this multi, we can see multi-layered application, can't we? Coming with the clouds, remember his transfiguration when the, the cloud enveloped him, that represented throughout God's scripture, God's presence, God's glory in the cloud, in the smoke, and, and that was uncertain. The disciples were clearly confused by, by, what, by what that represented up on that mountain. But it seems to be the beginning of this fulfillment. After Jesus was resurrected in Matthew 28, 18, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me. Look at Daniel 7, 14. He, has given, he was given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. And then he says, all, all people's nations of every language would worship him. At Acts, in Acts 2, at Pentecost, people from many nations and tribes and tongues worship Jesus. Jesus clearly brought the kingdom of God near. The kingdom of God is at hand. A kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so we see the beginning of this fulfillment, and yet that kind of language would make us question, is it truly fulfilled? There seems to be much more to come. And that is ultimately Jesus' promise, that he will come again, a pillar of Christian faith. He has come and is coming. He will return in glory and in authority, with justice, with righteousness, to make all things right. This is what this is the longing of the Christian heart throughout the millennia. When we don't long for this, we've, we've lost eyes into the pain of this world, the reality of the brokenness of the world, and we have diminished a vision of heaven that God calls us to through his word. A heaven that is far greater than anything we can imagine in times of trial and persecution and famine and uncertainty and pain, it's a little easier to long for God to come and make all things right. Perhaps we have fallen asleep on the promises of God. Well, Jesus flips back in, that, in, in verse 30 
To add to the confusion, he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So he's spoken of events that seem to have been fulfilled in AD 70 at the destruction of the temple. He quotes from Daniel, pointing forward to that after those events, after that distress, then there will be, and then he comes back to, and this generation will not pass away. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Are you confused yet? Do you got this? Have you grasped this? <laughs> oh, you want another example of the multi-layered? The one you've been waiting for? Verse 14. I'm always like, should we even go here? When you see the abomination that causes desolation, there's probably some parentheses in there, or single parentheses, because it's within the quote of Jesus. So you know he's referencing something else. It points you to where is he quoting from? The abomination that causes desolation. You might have a slightly different translation that you're looking at. Standing where it does not belong. Let the reader understand. There's an interjection of Mark. A commentary from Mark. Let the reader understand. He's saying, this is very, this is, this is very important. At least that's the way I read it. Because he doesn't interject very often like this. Right in the mid-flow of a quote of Jesus. Then, when, this, when that happens, when the abomination that causes desolation, because it's clear who that is or what that is, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He, he takes something that seems so ethereal or spiritual or uncertain and, and makes an absolute practical, if you're in Judea, get out. Get into the mountains for refuge. Let the reader understand. I love he, ironically, he injects probably at the most confusing, misunderstood part of the whole chapter. What we do know is Jesus is again quoting from Daniel three times in Daniel 9, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. That phrase comes up, the abomination that causes desolation. Now, many scholars believe that this was fulfilled in 167 BC when Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the Greek Hellenistic king who was ruling the Seleucid Empire, came in and, and set up a pagan altar inside of the temple. And in, in the apocryphal writings, which are still, well, they're contested as, as equivalent with Scripture, but they tell the story of God's people in Maccabees, 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees, in that interlude between Malachi and, and the gospel writings of Jesus' coming. It records this event. 1 Maccabees 1.54, on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, so very specific, they, this being the Hellenistic Empire, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of, of burnt offering. And then in 2 Maccabees 6.5, the altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws. People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors, nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. Many in Jesus' day would have said, those words of Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation, have been fulfilled. It's clear. That's why Maccabees was written that way. This has been fulfilled. Here comes Jesus messing things up, speaking in a way that this is not yet fulfilled, claiming it to be some cl very close time to this generation that something new is going to happen in the temple it's going to be an abomination, and that should be a sign for them, a sign of warning. Many today have still tried to point to this language being unfulfilled, and I think get caught in the weeds a little bit trying to find out who this is or what this means. The Jerusalem temple has never been rebuilt. Now, clearly, when, when, when Titus Caesar came and destroyed the city, he was, he was an abomination, the, the, the the temple was desecrated. 
and many appointed to the fulfillment there. But others have looked to its future fulfillment, believing that there's a multi-layered prophecy being spoken here. Now, why, why even take the time? I see your eyes. I see your posture. What can this possibly mean for us today? There's a, there's a number of reasons for it. First, we don't, we don't avoid any parts of Scripture. We look to what Jesus has to say, and we, we take that seriously. It's also a very important process to go through hermeneutically speaking, how we study and receive scriptures, if there's a part of a passage or a section of scripture that is clearly misunderstood, that there's no, there's no clear agreement of, not just we're reading it and say, maybe you have or maybe you haven't read this before, but you're like, that makes no sense to me. It's such a different, it must be such a different culture or context. Maybe the original hearers understood it. I don't think so. Actually, I like the alternate, alternate translation of Mark's interjection, let the reader understand. That literally means, let the one who knows know in Greek. I think he's saying, let the scholar or the one that can figure this out understand it, because we don't fully understand. I believe that's what Mark is saying, which puts us in better company, I think, to say, this is unclear. And, and this is an important hermeneutic principle of any part of studying scripture. If there's a part of a passage within the context of a, of a singular passage that we don't understand, that is not agreed on, we had better not claim we understand all of it or fully any part of it. And if there's anything that has been tragic in, in, the, in the abuse of God's scriptures and its word, it's taking things that are unclear and I believe meant to remain unclear and claiming they are clear, that we know, that I know, what God has said, and therefore, this is how we must respond. The right response, especially, I believe, with biblical prophecy is say, we don't know, and it's okay to say that. We don't clearly know how this story has been woven together and how it will be ultimately fulfilled, and that's an invitation to trust the God who is writing the story, the God who holds all things in his hand who has made some pretty big promises of things that we are meant to do in response to this, right? When Jesus says to his disciples, what I say to you, verse 37, I say to everyone, that includes us now, reading his word, watch, keep alert, eyes open, eyes open to the world, to the signs and the things, the, the pain and the loss and the hurt that is happening in the world. And he says, my presence in it. The Spirit will be with you. God's word will not pass away. No one knows about that day. That should be our clue right there. No one knows about that day. Not even the Son while, I, the son while living on earth. I don't even know. But the Father does know. Trust the Father. Trust his promises. Trust the clear things. It doesn't mean don't wade into the tide pools and look at the intricacies and try to, to see something new and explain it? How do you explain an anemone to someone who's never seen one? And yet don't be distracted for too long. Don't get your eyes off the horizon, the source of the life, the power of the waves. Don't, don't fear. Don't, don't fear the ocean. Enjoy it. Wade into it. Experience it. But recognize its power. Recognize your place. 
And as we respond to all of God's word and to biblical prophecy, may we have that awe, that humility, that ability to say, I don't know. I want to know. I want to know more. Lord, help me. I'll give my life to continue to study this incredible book and these words. We also recognize the Bible wasn't written to us. Hear this. It can be for us. It is for us. But when it was written, it was not written to us. It was written to a people at a time, in a culture, in a context very different than us. And there, there was much that they understood by their history and by their proximity that we, that we don't, that is lost. Some can be discovered, some can be learned through history and the resources that are there for us. But much can't. It can be for us, though, for us to understand a God who loves his people and is in pursuit of them and in pursuit of making all things right forever. These can be the anchors we hold on to. In the meantime, as we still wait for his return, for his coming, for the king to come and make all things right, as we long for that, I pray with a greater longing maybe than we've ever had in our life before. Our world needs it. We need it. I need it. I hope you say the same. I need it in my heart. Jesus, come. That's the right response. Jesus, give us clarity for how to see the world as you see it. We see often the pain out there and maybe can do something, maybe can, can give and help and support as we've tried to do to Ukrainian refugees and to others in need. But we can also look across the street or into our family, into our neighborhood, into our community. And what Jesus invites us to is to be alert to his kingdom, to be alert to the opportunities we have to represent him, to walk with him into these places, knowing that ultimately his heart is to bring renewal restoration, redemption, and justice and mercy for all peoples. These are the anchors we can hold on to as we come to passages that are misunderstood. I guess I'm going to be leaving some tide pools unexplored here today, and maybe we can talk more at some other time. As we respond today, Catherine and Tommy, would you come and lead us into a chance to respond We should always be living with a mindset. I believe, if anything, these words gave, G gave his disciples a mindset of these things are coming soon. The time is short. Whatever that meant, whether that meant years or decades, though, and the, this, is, this is the way the early church lived. The time is short. Jesus is coming back. And may, maybe he said generation many times. Within this generation, so maybe, maybe I won't see it would have been a response of a middle-aged man. Maybe I won't see it, but my kids will. And therefore, everything about how I live, how I use my resources or my funds, how I study, how I serve is impacted because the time is short. And I believe that's the right way to respond for God's people throughout the ages, to read the signs of the times to see the world through his eyes and say, the time must be short. I don't know if it's tomorrow or two decades from now or beyond to the next generation, but the king is going to fulfill his promises. The time must be short. How then must I live? Let's ask that question as we pray, as we ponder, as we sing these songs together, as we take communion. Again, you're invited to participate in the communion meal as we do every week in response. On the first Sunday of the month, we'll all pause and take together on these Sundays 
Be free to take individually or with those who are with you, reminded of what Christ has done, but that gives us hope for what is yet to come. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for all of your words. The ones that are, we think are pretty clear to us, some clear directions, some things, some anchors we can hold on to, your promises yet to come, what you have done and accomplished through the cross and through the grave, calling us to be alert, to stay awake, to be vigilant, to not be deceived by this world. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the words that stretch us, that are uncertain, that are obscure, because that makes us continue to seek you. That, that humbles us that there is so much more going on that you know about that we can never grasp. It puts us into a place before the power of the ocean. It humbles us at times. But we are in awe of your might and your beauty. I pray that you would continue to speak to your sons and daughters here. A message of alertness, of awareness to your presence with them, with their family, in their places of work, of community, of school, of recreation, that you are with them, that you love them, and you're inviting them to walk with you. Invite us to walk with you, we pray, in a clear way. Give us your eyes to see, your hearts to respond, for your glory, for our joy. Amen. Amen. Have an amazing day and week. Hope to see you soon.